Welcome to Brain Milk Podcast. I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Polk, and we got a fun one today. We're going to be talking about George Washington's famous farewell address. Uh, we think this is going to be a funny topic because uh, Donald Trump's uh, term is about to expire. And uh, we were joking about it earlier, just wondering amongst each other, uh, what would a farewell address from Trump look like? Uh, yeah, and actually, uh, we're, we're, it's actually a pretty fun topic of farewell addresses. So stay tuned. I think we're going to be doing a, like a few of these. Um, there's some notice, uh, nota, notable uh, farewell addresses in presidential history. So stay tuned on those. Uh, Andrew Johnson's is apparently really good, and it was really petty and bitchy. And then uh, it was so petty and bitchy that farewell addresses stopped being a thing <laughs> in uh, presidential culture uh, up until I think Truman restarted the uh, the tradition. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, if you don't know, George Washington served two terms, and uh, uh, after his second term, he gave a farewell address that kind of, uh, I guess you could say was the basis of a lot of American political thought for the next uh, basically at least 100 years. Uh, and people still talk about it today, uh, especially on the right wing. A lot of libertarians talk about it, especially in terms of limited government. Uh, but a little background. So George Washington, he uh, served one term and he thought about stepping down. He didn't want to be president. Uh, he kind of thought to himself he might not be qualified to be president for a republic. But uh, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson apparently helped convince him he needed to serve another term. Uh, there were a lot of fears back then that partisan divides in the country as the Federalist Party and the uh, uh, Democratic-Republican Party were starting to create a massive political divide in the country, and that only George Washington's personal leadership could uh, keep the country together and kind of weather that first kind of partisan storm in our nation's history. So he served a second term, and then uh, the first draft of this document that he had written after the first term, he kind of, uh, you know, it was written by Alexander Hamilton and um, James Madison. So they took it off the shelf, kind of revised it, added some stuff. And then he put it out to the public for press uh, in after his second term. So um, what we're going to talk about is just kind of an overview of some of the things he talks about. we got some interesting quotes, and we're going to try to bring it to uh, today's political world. So any thoughts before we get into it? Yeah, we'll kind of compare it to uh, Donald Trump. I guess, uh, like, introductory thought. I was just, while I was writing the notes for this, I was just thinking about, like, uh, you know, now that Donald Trump will soon no longer be president— it's like it hit me. It's like, wow, you know, are we going to be doing podcasts on just random like subjects like this that don't have to do with the things Donald Trump said and did that were belligerent <laughs> over the last week? You know, it's like, you know, having a having Joe Biden, who's like, you know, uh, sane and responsible and normal and calm. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a weird, uh, <laughs> I guess, well, part transition. of me, part of me kind of rhetorically thinks you're joking, right? Because uh, is there any doubt in your mind that Trump won't turn to Twitter the moment <laughs> Biden takes office and try to create a shadow uh, pretend presidency uh, yeah, from Twitter? I guess that's true. But I mean, see how see how Trump has such a hold on us. I mean, we bring up yeah. his name up one time and we have to get sucked <laughs> into that vortex of belligerence. Well, I'm sure we're going to keep uh, <laughs> getting sucked in today. Uh, right. So, yeah, so uh, we're going to go through a couple points addressed in the uh, farewell address from George Washington. We got some quotes, like we said before. Right. Uh, so the first I'll, I'll actually lead off oh, with, the, yeah. with the first sentence. I thought this was okay. pretty interesting. And uh, I was kind of surprised, uh, you know, George Washington didn't really write this speech himself. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it is very kind of uh, florally written, very good vocabulary. I mean, it's it's nice. 
I believe that's and, and Alexander it, Hamilton's work, right. the flowery language. And back in the day, a lot of these speeches were kind of like written to be pamphlets and then, you know, uh, distributed with printing presses all across the country. And they really were kind of like sold individually. You, you didn't want to miss a, a pamphlet speech, which nowadays, I mean, you can go to C-SPAN and I guess, I guess a lot of politicians these days kind of... Uh, write their own speeches and throw in jabs and whatever thinking that things will be timeless but i mean i mean ted cruz is an asshole what was the last thing he <laughs> yeah. wrote or said on on the floor of the senate that you can remember well if you talk <laughs> made, about being timeless uh george washington uh apparently was very uh self-aware very self-conscious of things he said publicly things he wrote down I think he was very intimately aware that everything he did was kind of setting a precedent for the new country. Uh, so now that we're 46 presidents in, I think some of that awe for the position and awe for the republic, you know, of the people, by the people is kind of worn off, at least with our 46th president. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, you go through his like speeches and tweets and stuff, and he's like calling people do like women dogs and you know calling every news agency in america failing <laughs> you know, it's like it's pretty pathetic yeah but i guess uh to juxtapose that with some actual uh oratory the first sentence and mind you this is all one sentence a bit of a run-on sentence if you ask my uh <laughs> proofreading mind uh but he starts off the period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant and the time actually arrived when your thoughts must be employed in designating the person who is to be clothed with that important trust. It appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce to a more distinct expression of the public voice, that I should now appraise you, or sorry, apprise you of the resolution I have formed to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. That's a pretty uh, floral statement there to basically just say that, you know, it's time for your voice to be heard with another election and your vote. And out of everybody running, I am declining to be considered among those. Uh, it would be interesting, you know, to what do you think if like a politician actually still gave speeches like this with such, <laughs> you know, such a, I guess you could say elevated prose kind of uh, verbiage and stuff? What, what do you think? How would that play? Would it just look stupid? If somebody actually tried to be so verbose and I guess so, it depended uh, on who it would be, right? So like I, I yeah. like I, I imagine in Ted Cruz's mind all of his speeches are like that in his <laughs> yeah, own mind. You're, you're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> well another thing is like speech making is totally different now because so much of our political process and all the speech is being done on the Senate floor or the House of Representatives. I mean it's just partisan bullshit, right? It's played on C SPAN, but no one's paying attention. Nobody's watching it. Uh, yeah, I mean, newspapers, right. as you know, a dying breed as they are, like aren't publishing, you know, first page uh, accounts of what an individual senator said. I don't think many yeah. people in the uh, Congress right now are writing speeches thinking that their speech is going to be some, you know, standard bearer. Uh, philosophy or ideology or idea that's you know going to survive yeah. the ages well and another thought is people don't really write their speeches anymore presidents have speech writers and that's you know true like too. obama would actually go through and heavily edit and kind of write portions of his own speeches but i mean Don donald trump i don't think has written a word of, yeah. i don't think he's written a sentence you know that he's read on a teleprompter that he personally 
wrote himself. Well, I mean, when you when you see him reading from a teleprompter, his body position <laughs> yeah. is his, him kind of leaning into the lectern usually yeah, on the right. podium and just kind of staring. And yeah. I mean, he messes up words. I can see words. that lean. I can see it. And the way he responds to it in real time. Yeah. <laughs> well, know, I mean, like, normally, he, like, yeah, his flow when he gives speeches is not the flow of someone who's read right. what they're reading before. Yeah. But it <laughs> it's is new to him like as a, it is to the public. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I would say it's also like a uh, like a degradation of like just the uh, maybe the caliber of people who get elected. Because, I mean, like imagine uh, Lincoln, you know, he wrote all of his own speeches, you know, like I mean, Lincoln had some of the most timeless words ever. And like he would literally, you know, chill out in the White House for like weeks and struggle over the words to write his own speeches. And like uh, the Gettysburg Address, which, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe top 10 greatest speeches of all world history let alone just american history i mean i mean even like uh tolstoy i I believe it was tolstoy the the russian writer like you know knew lincoln and thought he was a great man like all around the world people respected him but i mean like he you know agonized over that and like you know back in that day it was like people would actually go to all of these events wanting to listen to the you know the great man president you know deliver his intelligent words and stuff uh, Link. Well, I guess Lincoln might have been a little bit of a, an outlier. I guess. Well, yeah, for I, sure. I can't say I know anything Buchanan ever <laughs> said or wrote. <laughs> yeah. I guess. But well, um, that's actually a good segue because you're talking about Lincoln. Um, you know, his famous words like uh, in speech writing, for example, like a house divided cannot stand. That goes kind of directly into right. one of the first things we're going to talk about today uh, per the George Washington farewell address. And, and and one of the things he talks about is basically, you know, it, it's a long warning about potential threats to Republican liberty. Right. So throughout the document, he stresses that independence, peace, safety, prosperity and liberty are all dependent on the states remaining unified. And, you know, if we're going to bring this to Trump today, I mean, Trump literally craves disunity. Right. He doesn't even care. Uh, can you imagine Trump ever saying something like Lincoln said about how a house divided cannot stand? You know, he, he thrives on on competition with some enemy, right? We know he holds grudges, right. et cetera. Uh, and the most important thing for Trump is that there's really two kinds of people in the world, people who love him and bend over backwards for him, and then people he hates. You know, he's already referred to them right. many times on Twitter as his haters, right? Uh, which is almost a joke that the president of the United States would be calling people haters. Um, but we know Trump only wants revenge on people who don't go along with him. Yeah, so, right. I mean, when you talk about unity or disunity, I mean, I think disunity is literally the name of the game for Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like his worldview. He's so selfish and self-absorbed that, you know, anybody who <laughs> is not nice or kind or, you know, totally subservient to him is like a traitor to the country. Like, he has oh, no yeah. distinction between his own personal interest and like the, the national interest or the good of all Americans. Well, yeah, I mean, look at it. Look at COVID, right? Trump and, and apparently, you know, his senior White House uh, advisor, who's also, you know, uh, nepotistically his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, you know, they thought it would be politically useful that New York and California were the first states hit by COVID. And by doing nothing, right. it would make, you know, uh, you know, their their liberal governors look bad. And then, you know, somehow in their deluded brain, that would make Trump look good. Uh, I'm not right. sure how yeah. that works. Uh, and then, you know, you so talk about, diluted. well, yeah, and a you house, imagine the, like Obama, you know, with that yeah. oil spill in Alabama and Mississippi, just saying, fuck Alabama. Yeah. <laughs> Let the oil just go all over their, be-. you know, like.
like if if Obama were Trump, he would have said, "Fuck their beaches." You know, I hope they never make another penny from tourism again. Yeah, He'd be like so pathetic and petty. Well, here's another example, right? The governor, uh, governor, and the government, the state government of Maryland, when COVID, you know, really hit America, they were literally hiding uh, medical testing kits that their state right. individually. Their state, Maryland alone, bought from South Korea yeah, because they're afraid right. the Trump administration was going to try to seize it, steal it, and then give it to a red state. Instead. Yeah, they had armed guards, right? Like yeah. for the delivery. That's kind of uh, preposterous. Yeah. And this is something that, uh, you know, speaking of unity, Washington, um, it, it's kind of interesting because obviously at the time in the 1790s, uh, when he's giving the speech, um, you know, he says that the North and South are dependent on each other. Obviously, the North had a lot of the manufacturing, but needed all of the, like the raw resources and agriculture from the South. So he said both of those are dependent on each other. But he also pointed out he obviously, you know, the kind of manifest destiny idea that obviously America was going to expand westward. Mm -hmm. And so the, he actually did warn, you know, that the West has room to grow. And he warns against like the West or e either the North or the South, like becoming an apostate. Uh, and having an unnatural connection with any foreign power, you know, that would be uh, intrinsically precarious, he says. And that's kind of an interesting idea, especially now. I mean, like Trump, you know, talking about unity where uh, I'm sure that maybe uh, we have I'm sure we haven't heard the last of uh, the kind of Mueller report stuff with Russian collusion. And, you know, oh, yeah, the, uh, the what he got impeached for, for trying to use like American foreign policy for personal partisan gain with. Uh, you know, with like basically blackmailing other countries and trying to get favor from, you know, certain countries for, you know, his own personal gain. Mm -hmm. um, that would uh, not please George Washington. I am willing to uh, put money on. <laughs> yeah. On that and, idea. And, well, and, and as we go through like some of the parts of this uh, farewell speech, it's kind of interesting to see the areas where George Washington was very astute and very prescient, you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, there are a couple areas where he's less so, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, So a second right. big topic uh, we have uh, in the address is that uh, George Washington spent a lot of time warning uh, that Americans should be suspicious of anyone who seeks to abandon the Union or to secede from the country. And when I saw that, the first thing I kind of thought uh, was like, what if Donald Trump leaves America after he's done being president because he's afraid of a state government going after him for, you know, you know, blatant uh, tax law violations? Right, the state of New York. Yeah, yeah. that'd be really <laughs> that'd interesting. Be... You know, Donald Trump has said for four years now that he's a president of law and order. Uh, but, you know, people are actively <laughs> yeah, speculating right. if he's going to flee the country on account of law and order. <laughs> you know what? That would that would actually not to go too down uh, a rabbit hole, but that would actually probably be great for America if if we could just basically try him in uh, what's it called Ab absentia, absentia. Yeah. right? And so that his supporters, you know, it's like he, his arguments and his defense. I guess he would like you know be on Twitter still in a, in like Russia or whatever, claiming everything he wants to claim. But I guess his kind of like his mandate for being rigged, you know, the all the trials and stuff being rigged by a deep state and his haters, you know, like you literally flood the country because like, I don't know what the Supreme court won't let you pardon yourself. <laughs> let that hold up, you know, or just blanket pardons for all of your kids and Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, yeah, I well, pardon them for everything they've ever done up until January 20th. 
after yeah. that clean slate. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll you know. see what happens because he, for anyone listening who didn't know, he recently gave a full pardon to uh, Flynn, his old national security advisor, who had to, you know, resign right. uh, in disgrace, you might say, after apparently lying to Mike Pence about his dealings with other countries. Uh, and the pardon was interesting because it was for any crimes that may have been committed. So kind of taking the Richard Nixon uh, Ford uh, way out of just saying if any he- crimes here within were committed are bad no you know right. we're not going to be charged for this so you See, know that's some so people weird. oh go uh, ahead that's so that's so weird because first off like i think that the uh the government like the feds and democrats should like call bullshit on that pardon and take it to the supreme court i mean the supreme court might rule in favor of flynn given that they have like kind of a conservative uh, swing right now but i mean i think that is something that obviously should have some precedent in the supreme court one way or the other it should go to the supreme court and someone make a decision because that, like what a ludicrous thing i mean it worked with uh nixon because we didn't actually pursue it and counter sue and appeal and do all that to get to the highest court to make a decision whether that pardon for that like blanket pardon just works i mean nixon wasn't mm-hmm. like formally acute like a uh, charge with anything right I mean, whereas like Mike Flynn has been Correct. formally charged, just not stuff. yet. He would have been, right. but he hadn't would been, have been charged right. at that point. But so, what's like, another thing? It begs pardons the... need to not be a thing. I feel like you know. Oh yeah, for sure. And it begs the question of like, uh, you know, uh, sensibly, Flynn would be getting pardoned for something acting on behalf of Trump himself. So I mean, right. the crimes committed, you know, presumably Flynn wasn't some guy who was just doing everything on his own volition. Right. Had no contact as a national security advisor to Donald Trump. <laughs> had no contact with him, and Donald Trump had no idea what he was doing. Uh, right. So I mean, that's kind of uh, legally specious at best, I would and, think. And then even more murky is the fact that you know the fact that uh, Flynn was doing these crimes in service of Donald Trump means effectively that this pardon is an act of obstruction of justice, (laughs) which I I believe our justice system usually says that you can't, you know, commit crimes to get away with other crimes. (laughs) You know, at some point you have to be guilty of something, right? You know, and on top of that, there's the, the, there's the idea that Michael Flynn, once you accept a pardon, you're admitting guilt so that you can't be charged again. However, if you get in, like subpoenaed for information and intel and I guess receipts or whatever on someone else's crimes, you can't plead the fifth. So I Correct. guess in theory, yeah. Yeah. I guess in theory, Michael <laughs> Flynn could be compelled or go to prison again, you know, a second time or a third time or whatever, however many times it's been for him. Well, that'll be an important thing for the right wing when when Trump starts pardoning people. I mean, Joe Biden becomes president in 50 days, so any pardons are going to be within the next 50 days. So the far right talking about law and order saying, oh, it's it's 4D chess of Trump to pardon all these people. No, it's not 4D chess, because like you said, it, it, <laughs> you know, the the way the uh, the legal system in America works, if you accept a presidential pardon, you are admitting you broke crimes because no innocent person you know, logically, <laughs> would take a pardon for a crime they did not commit. You don't need a right. pardon if you didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and then, like you said, you can't plead the fifth later on. So if you're investigated or subpoenaed, you have to tell them about other information regarding the crimes and other people might have been involved because right. you yourself have been pardoned, having admitted to that crime. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. Look what Donald Trump has done yeah. to us. Even on a podcast <laughs> yeah. about George Washington, we can't help but get sucked in. Well, I think this is going to be mostly about Trump because <laughs> we're comparing <laughs> yeah, I guess that's George true. Washington to him. So, right. I mean, here's another funny thing. I mean, this is a it, taking. I love this. He warns that Americans should be suspicious of anyone who seeks to abandon the union or to secede. Uh, I think it's kind of funny, like not even the whole union, but remember when Trump was in Erie, Pennsylvania on the eve of the election saying, you know, oh, if I lose to to Joe Biden, I might have to leave the country. So he's kind of telegraphing right there. But then he also said, if I don't win, I'll never be back here. <laughs> I think he said that a couple times at a couple different rallies in little towns around America saying, I will never come back here. You'll never see me again. I just thought that was funny. Yeah, foreshadowing <laughs> legal troubles that he knows about. Well, I mean, yeah. like, you know, think of every president who always talks about, like, you know, small town America. And then you have Donald Trump, this fake billionaire from New York City who's got an apartment yeah. full of gold saying, I will never come back to this shithole little right. town unless I have <laughs> yeah, to. <right. laughs> yeah, he says that. He insults the yeah. towns he goes to. And that's another thing. Real quick, I want to talk about just some bullshit that pissed me off on Twitter. <laughs> it was like, I think it was like Fox News or some Republic, some conservative uh uh, pundit was saying that Joe Biden is like elitist and it's just like are you kidding me like Joe Biden was at one point like the poorest senator in the Senate he had this long career he has money now thanks to like I guess investments and books and stuff that he's written but and like Obama had to pay off his house because he was gonna lose his house so like Joe Biden is not in any way elitist Whereas Donald Trump, like, shit's in a gold toilet. Like, it's just, you know, the, the yeah. degree of hypocrisy will kill us all if, you know, if somehow Donald Trump uh, is arrested and doesn't start a civil war and kills us all. The pure and sheer hypocrisy of Republicans in Congress. And it's the same thing, like, right now with these uh, Senate confirmation, uh, like, foreshadowing things. You know, like, Neera Tannen got... Uh, uh, she got appointed for the OMB, right? Yeah. The Office of Management uh, and Budget. What is that? Monet yeah. <laughs> and so, like, all these Republicans are bitching about how she had some mean tweets at them. And it's just like, where have you been in the last four years? And it's like, none of you ever read a single tweet Trump said, apparently. You, you, you never saw the tweet. You don't have any opinions. But, oh, my God, Neera Tandon, <laughs> you know, liberal Twitter troll. It really yeah. upsets you. What's well, another important thing I just thought about is when you look at Joe Biden's career, he was a senator for decades, right? And then he was vice president. And then, you know, he stopped being vice president. And two years later, he's running for president. So essentially, his entire adult life, you know, he famously got elected at what, 29, right? He was like technically right. under the legal age, but he would have turned 30 by the time he would have been seated. So you're talking about a guy who's literally never been a lobbyist. He's been doing public service his entire freaking adult life. And you're going to say he's some kind of like elitist, rich, you know, grifter. Right. I mean, that guy, right. he's literally been a senator or vice president or running for president his entire adult life. It's 100 percent right. uh, public service. So yeah. hate him or and love him. He's not like some kind yeah. of grifter. Right. Meanwhile, let's show the uh, the scoreboard on who paid more taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Joe Biden paid like what three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand yeah. taxes. Anyway, let's get back to okay. George yeah. Washington. So, well, a couple <laughs> things I, I was thinking of, like you know, uh, banning the union or seceding. Right. So I always think of like the numerous, numerous uh, efforts of different parts of the country, individual states, etc., to secede. Uh, most famously, you know, he had the Civil War where the entire South left. 
or tried to secede. Uh, they lost that war, contrary to popular belief down there. Um, however, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's important uh, historical note for people who don't know, but during the War of 1812, when uh, uh, James Madison was president, the entire Northeast talked about seceding as well. Uh, and the reason being is they didn't like France. They preferred Britain. They had a lot of trade with Britain. Um, and they thought if, you know, that Democratic Republican, uh, you know, Jefferson and then following Madison uh, are going to, you know, you know, basically, you know, tramp. I think the biggest thing was like uh, Jefferson put a national embargo on international trade late in his presidency. And it like destroyed, obviously, American shipping with the outside world. So they're like, fuck this. We're going to leave. Uh, so I think that's an interesting thing to know. Most people don't know is that the northeast of this country thought about and actively pursued, but not too far, uh, actually leaving the union first. Yeah. Another thing. And there were a bunch of southern states talking about seceding for decades. Oh, yeah. Up to the Civil well, War. yeah. I mean, South Carolina threatened to secede yeah. during Andrew Jackson, the <laughs> right. seventh president. And Andrew Jackson yeah, said, well, we're going to put the U.S. Army down there and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and they right. they wisely chose not to secede. But uh, I, I think it's interesting, too. Uh, so California had a big secession movement trying to get Yes, California or Cal Exit on the ballot. Uh, and, and apparently when they did digging, they realized that the guy who was the leader of the group was a 30-year-old who was living in Siberia, Russia, had married a Russian and worked in Russia and was frequently on Russian media talking about why California should leave. So, I mean, when you talk about George Washington presciently saying anyone who wants to leave the union, you should be suspicious of this Russian American guy living in Russia, embedded with Russia, going on Russian media talking. I mean, like, can you? Oh, and another thing, obviously, the social uh, media movements in the 2016 election when they were trying to get that prop on the ballot. Uh, was predominantly, you know, uplifted by Russian, you know, cyber trolls. So, I mean, talk right. about being suspicious <laughs> of someone trying to leave the union, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. oh, my gosh. But, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, moving on to the next thing in the farewell dress, another big point uh, George Washington brings up again and again is he urges Americans to place their identities as Americans above any other identities and to put their efforts and influence of the country over any local interests. Uh, so obviously right. that plays in a secession thing <laughs> you'd say, fuck every, you know, fuck the rest of America. Our state's only in it, <laughs> in this thing for ourselves is one thing. But I mean, you talk about like, uh, you know, the Republican party, what do they used to always say? Country first. Uh, but I think since Trump has come along, I, I mean, country first is like the antithesis of everything they've stood for the, for the last four years. Yeah. And it's ironic, you know, he's always just, it's its nothing but lies, but the idea of, like, make America great again and America first, mm -hmm. it's just like, you look at some of these foreign policy deals and efforts, like, what is America first about, like, these giant arms deals with Saudi Arabia, <laughs> yeah. you know, giving a... You know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I could talk yeah. all day. But I, I have another quote from George Washington right. here. And this is kind of good. Talking about the idea of, like, the people belonging to America and, you know, you know, definitely putting in the of the people, by the people, for the people. He writes, uh, the basis of our political system is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the Constitution, which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. 
And I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think there's a yeah, very, very sure. great quote in it. Because, like, right off the bat, it's interesting. It talks about, like, uh, I have a note here, like, so much for the strict constitutionalist <laughs> philosophy. Yeah. And, like, we've talked about this before, but uh, Thomas Jefferson, you know, famously thought a generation was 19 years. And every generation, people should throw out <laughs> all the, the Constitution and all the government. All the uh, laws. Like, yeah, all the laws and just start over, write their own. And, uh, you know, certainly that might be extreme, but compared to the strict constitutionalists who say we should never change anything because the founding fathers said it perfectly right and would not want us to change anything, like, clearly the right answer is uh, somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. What's and, like, obviously, you, you read a lot of these writers yeah. and they, they say, you know, like, I mean, the the... First off, like, I mean, everyone knows that, like, we have the Bill of Rights and all these amendments, which obviously are changes. <laughs> but then the ninth and the, or, yeah, the what is it, the ninth and the tenth amendment that explicitly say, like, hey, we haven't covered everything. Yeah. Here's how you add more uh, amendments and how you figure out, like, whether it should be a federal or a state's thing. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Um, <laughs> I mean, I that's, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and then another part of it I liked is the idea that, um, you know, the Constitution, until changed with an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all, which that's kind of interesting because a lot of people obviously, you know, you might say like the don't tread on me people, you know, <laughs> think that like all kinds of rules and laws and, you know, things in the Constitution that they personally don't like is some kind of tyranny or whatever. But, it's, you know, Washington's very explicit about, you know, being uh, loyal to the Constitution and we can change it. Um, but, you know, it, that's kind of interesting that like the idea of having a Constitution in the first pay, in the first place kind of, you know, it's like an, a sacred uh, obligation for all people to abide by. And like, obviously, you know, especially if you look in time in terms of like the historical uh, moment that he's writing this right like all the other major countries in europe are all monarchies with kind of you know if not tyrannical certainly uh, you could you know arguably say whimsical absolutist monarchs mm -hmm. you know so it's like you know uh especially in terms of when he's writing this like america very much is an experiment still i mean everybody says we're an experiment to this day but i mean this is like when the experiment is like literally hey the first guy's deciding not to be a permanent for life dictator we're moving on to the next guy let's see if you know what happens to the experiment <laughs> yeah like it's just you know the the kind of context of it kind of makes it you know his words and the ideas of uh madison and uh uh, Hamilton kind of more magical oh yeah I mean especially when you talk about like the whimsical monarchies where you know their <laughs> every thought and wish was like divinely inspired <laughs> yeah. right I mean right. like look at it kill that guy over there in the corner who didn't laugh at my joke <laughs> yeah that, that was ordained by God himself <laughs> well I mean you talk about what I was gonna say earlier is like the interest of you know just America over any individual I mean like look at the Republican Party the entire Republican Party right now to my best knowledge or my best guess is really coalescing behind Donald Trump. And then apparently right now, Rudy Giuliani, who's helping convince, uh, you know, the Republican Party to blackmail itself so that Trump doesn't, you know, yeah. throw the two Georgia Senate seats, you know, into the mud and give the Senate to the Democrats. And I mean, even that, I mean, Rudy Giuliani, 
I mean, what is he? I mean, he's more famous right now for being pranked by Borat than actually winning any legal, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly, right. he's yeah. a lawyer of some sort. Yeah. But I mean, like... yeah, I think he, I think he's been pranked by Borat like more now. Yeah. <laughs> than, than the court cases he's won just about. Well, and yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's in the news for apparently trying or hoping to sleep with a woman who he believed was 15 years old. <laughs> you know, she was actually <laughs> yeah. 22 or whatever, but he he believed she was 15. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he's not in the news for winning any actual lawsuits in any jurisdiction anywhere in the United States. <laughs> right. Some Yeah, I, I posted something, and I saw, like, a little Twitter fight between two other people. I posted something making fun of Rudy Giuliani for that. Mm-hmm. And somebody tweeted, like, you do realize that was a movie, right? <laughs> and then a second person who's not an idiot said, you do realize Rudy Giuliani didn't know it was a movie <laughs> when he had it in his, his hand in his pants, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of funny. But uh, talking about, like, the kind of subservience uh, that the Republican Party has to Trump, here's a great quote because, I mean, everyone remembers uh, this farewell address for, like, kind of warning against political parties, which, you know, the joke is obviously that immediately, yeah, yeah, that immediately political parties became a thing if they weren't already just not in name. Because, I mean, like, first off, right off the bat, like, the Federalists and Anti-Federalists got started whether or not to even sign the Constitution. So, you know, you do what you can. (laughs) But uh, here's a great quote um, that's pretty explicitly anti-party. He says, All obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations and associations under whatever plausible character with the real design to direct, control, and counteract or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities are destructive of this fundamental principle and of fatal tendency. Talking about like how parties are fatal to, uh, to the uh, uh, democracy. He says, they serve to organize faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. So, I mean, that's uh, it's a very floral way to put it, but that's pretty explicitly uh, yeah, I mean, against any kind of factions kind of, sub, you know, making their own will rather than the collective will of the country. Well, yeah, kind of a, a generic overview of that is, you know, he was really worried about, you know, a political party or faction basically just seeking to gain power uh, via right. popular, you know, uh, support, answering popular demands. Uh, or, uh, you know, trying to actually solve a real problem. But, you know, a lot of people back then, and certainly George Washington talks about it here, you know, he believed that if a party or a faction was doing something to solve a problem, they were probably simultaneously kind of holding secret intention to take power from the people, to put power in the hands of unjust men uh, in their own party for their own benefit uh, sooner or later, right? Um, And, you know, say what you will about the political parties, uh, you know, a lot of American, uh, I guess, punditry uh, today talk about, you know, both sidisms, right? Oh, this side does that, this side. But the, right. the two parties are just not at all equal right now. Um, and you're talking about the political party 
who had a guy literally just last month lose an election and he's still trying <laughs> yeah, to right. lead a quiet, you know, I mean, maybe this is something you could trademark, but world's dumbest coup attempt ever. Um, like that's literally where we are. One political party is trying to do a, a blatant, stupid coup attempt. And the other political party is just trying to govern after they won an election. So, yeah. um, I mean, as far as holding secret that's, intentions to yeah. take power, Trump already talked right. about doing more than two terms, even though, you know, legally right. he can't. Um, and, and now about it's, it's super men, destructive. Right? Right. And it's super destructive now with the whole concept of the culture war yeah. where you really like, I mean, it, it, talking about like the both sides is I'm like, it's really a one sided war. Right. Like the culture war, like the war on Christmas, like liberals don't give a shit about Christmas. It's just like all of these like corporate stores that want to sell coffee to Indian people who don't care about Christmas <laughs> aren't going to like blast Christmas on like literally every product that they sell. But, like, you know, you talk about that, like, both sidesism is destructive and, like, the hyperpartisan uh, one sidism that we face. Like, it is just kind of ludicrous now. It's like, it, it's the culture war is, like, taking over everything in the Republican Party. Like, you can't acknowledge climate change is real, even as weather's getting batshit crazy and every scientist yeah. everywhere is like, yeah, every number is going off the charts, you know, of heat, <laughs> of uh, atmospheric energy, of, like, ocean acidification, of, like, Greenland and Antarctic Carbon dioxide melting. in the atmosphere. I saw, right, you could, yeah. like every single number is haywire, you know. I saw this chart. It was like the amount of carbon dioxide per parts per million over the last eight hundred thousand years, and on this graph, yeah. you see up and down blips of warm periods and cold yeah. periods, but very so, slowly tapering ups and downs. Like it's well, very well, yeah, gradual yeah. What you see kind of like a, blips. You see a very obvious range, right? I mean, you know, it goes mm -hmm. up, it goes down. It's within the same exact range, and then suddenly, you know, in the last hundred years. Uh, you see it go way up to a, a level that's three times more than any other period in the last right. 800,000 years. And you're going to act like, oh, that's nothing. That's normal. Right. And, like, I don't think that's on, normal. And then on top of that, you know, with the culture war, like you can't you can't admit that climate change is real. You uh, you yeah. can't <laughs> admit evolution is real and you can't teach it. That's another thing that like you look at any facet of biology or microbiology or paleontology or archaeology <laughs> aspects of geology that corroborate you know like the 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 kind of fossil record and like yeah. all the layers and of like uh like underground and stuff um and then like even more stuff is like uh um uh, with like the culture wars um like religion obviously is the big one that you know just like now it's like the idea that America's an ethno state and has always been a white country for white people. Like it's just getting really radical and fucked up. Um, I think definitely a lot of Republicans could make, you know, and it's like the idea that it's like, uh, you know, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. You know, mm -hmm. that's uh, it's that's kind of anecdotal and obviously not like the widespread device. But I mean, certainly you see that where it, well, uh, people like just the level of. People wear that on yeah, T-shirts uh, at Trump rallies. They take pictures of them. Right, yeah. And it's like, you you know, not every Republican will say that, but you look at what they actually do and some of, like, the legislation that gets passed and all the talking points where, like, anything remotely progressive is considered, like, neo-Marxist trash, stuff like that. Like, it is, it is really dumb when things like, you know, like, just raising the minimum wage or giving health care to poor people, like, all of these things that are, like, so minimal... Yeah, especially compared to the rest of like the modern world um 
Yeah, you. I think we can definitely say that uh, we have not taken George Washington's advice on that one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> to, to say the least. Well, um, yeah, that was here's another. <laughs> that was a bit of a here's another hole. good. <laughs> yeah, here's another good quote from George Washington on that. He goes, "However, combinations or associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion." And you kind of mentioned some of those uh, earlier, but I think that again, like that's kind of like perfectly describing donald trump you know he's trying to like now he lost an election and he's trying to undo all the you know the votes that went against him to <laughs> well, literally throw off the engines of our democracy they let him be president by not winning in 2000 you know he didn't win the popular vote in 2016 well donald trump was such a so far off the deep end he was trying to like uh you know badmouth the election he won remember hillary clinton won by almost three million votes right. and he claimed he knew of five million fake votes cast. <laughs> he just won. Yeah, the, he should have just taken right. the W and just moved on. Yeah, and it's you know it's so dumb because like in the primary he lost uh, Iowa first to Ted to Cruz. Ted Cruz <laughs> it's yeah. the same thing. He same said thing. Iowa fake, just fraud, he stole it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Iowa should just uh, overturn the results and give all the delegates to him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, well, here's an interesting thing, and I found this one fascinating. So we, there's a little bit about taxation and uh, the nation's credit. And George Washington, in his farewell address, says basically that taxes are, in fact, necessary for some reasons, including precautionary expenses. Uh, he urged the government to be careful in choosing what to tax, which is important, obviously, and reminds Americans that no matter how hard government tries, there won't ever be a tax that is in, that is not inconvenient and unpleasant for those required to pay it. So I thought that was a fascinating thing for him to say, because a lot of Republicans and libertarians love to you know, throw up the Constitution, the Founding Fathers. Well, George Washington is about as much of a Founding Father as you can get. And he's literally saying taxes are important. They do something. And the government should be careful in what they tax and how they tax. However, yeah, the taxes are inconvenient and annoying to pay, but that's just a fact of being life. Uh, you know, we've talked about this before. I think taxation is just something that happens in a developed society, right? Uh, there's no way around it. Uh, but a very important point, I thought, was uh, you know the idea that taxes are necessary for precautionary expenses. And that's one of those things that has obviously evolved over time, right? What, what was a precautionary right. expense back then is, is, is much smaller in scale to what it is now, right? I mean, look at COVID. I would make the argument, and I think many others would, that spending a couple million dollars for a couple hundred medical scientists doing precautionary pandemic response science and setting up pandemic response teams, uh, you know, those few million dollars uh, is more than enough precautionary, you know, uh, government expenditure to not have to deal with COVID in the way we did, where we spent trillions, uh, you know, giving out stimulus and bailouts to companies, uh, stimulus to taxpayers, and on top of that, having thousands of small businesses close. So when you talk about precautionary, I think that's like one of the things that, you know, people who argue that the government should be the same as it was in 1776 or, you know, when, when George Washington left in, in 1796, 97, I mean, they just have their heads in their butt. What do you think about that? Yeah, and, it, and it's dumb because it's like they only, you know, they're picking and choosing things. 
like what should we go back to the whiskey rebellion yeah. <laughs> like should we go back to that period too or only the things that you like that happened in 1797 based on your superficial view of like what you think you know the founding fathers thought but i also thought that tax bit was really interesting uh, and he also warns that, you know, not only like our taxes kind of like uh, necessary here and there, but he, he, he specifically points out um, that it's necessary that public opinion should cooperate yeah. to facilitate <laughs> to them the performance of their duty, like con- like the government. It is essential that you should pra- uh, practically bear in mind that towards the payment of debts, there must be revenue, that to have revenue, there must be taxes. And like you said, he writes, and no taxes can be devised, which are not uh, more or less inconvenient and unpleasant. Like, you know, a lot of uh, I think you could throw out a lot of Republican talking points about taxation and things like that. Just, you know, they want to write about what the founding father like that. You could say there's a strict constitutionalist idea, you know. Maybe this isn't in the Constitution, but it's like literally George Washington. <laughs> you know, it's you, you can't get any more founding father than that, like you said. All right, let's talk a little bit about constitutional change. George Washington said a little bit about it. Um, he writes basically that we should not kind of impair the system or alter it in such a way that we impair the energy of the system, which is kind mm-hmm. of an interesting uh, idea and maybe a distinction as well, um, but so that we don't undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. Um and that's kind of an interesting idea. I would argue, actually, though, that like right now our political problems in government are the opposite. I'd say that like our system is too adverse to change. And we've talked a little bit about this, about like all the problems with the Senate and the filibuster that like, mo- you know, any other democracy doesn't have this like kind of like blanket filibuster that unless you have a super majority in an already kind of undemocratic chamber of a legislative body that, you know, doesn't maybe need to have two separate, you know, chambers of the Congress, but we do have two separate changers uh, or chambers. And then like, you know, the higher chamber having that ridiculous, you know, and, and it's not even in the Constitution. It's literally just a rule. Like the founding fathers didn't write that you have to have a two thirds uh, like majority, unless somebody yeah, wants super to talk forever. Fil- yeah. The word right, filibuster yeah. is not in the Constitution. Yeah, exactly. So, like, well, what do you a- think about that? I, I, I think that, like, the, the problem is we don't have enough change right now. Honestly, we need oh, a yeah, lot of 100%. change to adapt to the changing times. A little puppy uh, barking, but yeah, I agree. Puppy action. <laughs> yeah, a little puppy action, but yeah, I agree. 100%. He cares a lot about this. <laughs> yeah. He, Thor does not like the say. filibuster. Yeah. Let the record show. <laughs> No, but I think it's a just indication of the pace of change, right? Because if you look at the beginning of the 1700s versus 1796, not much changed, right? Politically, right. economically, it was still just a bunch of farmers living on the land, right? Um, but you could not say the same thing between 1800 and 1900, and you definitely couldn't say the same thing from 1900 to, the 20, uh, to 2000, right, to the 21st century. Uh, so that's a huge problem. I mean, like, look at something like warfare, right? If you're going to say, like, we should stay by the same rules politically that we had in 1776 or 1796, uh, you wouldn't say the same thing about warfare, right? We wouldn't just keep using the same muskets from the George Washington administration. Uh, so why would we not update our policy or our political processes to reflect that change in society and the world? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I think about this a lot because, you know, especially with the foreign policy stuff and warning not to have like entanglements mm-hmm. with foreign powers and stuff. But it's like, what would what do you think Washington would think if you could like take him to, uh, let's say, 19, uh, like 1919 as the American president uh, is trying to get the League of Nations passed? Right. Like a, mm-hmm. like literally, I guess, uh, like you know, literally entangle our own foreign policy within all of the kind of foreign policies of the other countries. And I guess you could even take it a few years back. And, you know, what do you think George Washington would think about World War One, where we kind of come in uh, at the end of the war to help win? And you might, you know, like right off the bat, you might say he would just oppose it, you know, without a second thought. But on the other hand, like, what would George Washington think about America suddenly becoming the creditor nation of the world right like as all these big strong rich european countries waste themselves in this war and destroy themselves and go into giant debt would george washington or maybe some of the other founding fathers maybe thomas jefferson like what would they think about that opportunity to basically become like the world's bank and the richest country kind of profiting off of their you know their foreign entanglements and their their wars and stuff well i mean to some degree well first off there's like the geopolitical side of uh, Washington's farewell address and the geopolitical international implications have changed completely. That's like the one area where he wasn't very prescient. For example, I mean, just talking about World War One, not including World War Two, right? I mean, they sent a million American soldiers to Europe. I mean, in, in 1796, that would have been like a third of the entire population that we just, you know, right. sent to military training and then sent over to Europe. Uh, I mean, and plus the idea that, you know, Germany would have a massive, you know, U-boat fleet that was wreaking havoc on the world shipping. George Washington talked a lot about having free trade, open trade, right. you know, fair, free feelings for, you know, towards everyone. Right. Like, don't be a everybody. That's an interesting idea, yeah. And plus, yeah. on the other hand, like World War One. I, I mean, some of it was propaganda, but I mean, fundamentally, the reason we were kind of invested on one side more than the other was it was kind of turned into a battle of democracies against, you know, like non-democracies. You know, the Kaiser yeah. wasn't really that big into a, a constitutional republic, you know, with democratic elections. Well, resource is a big part of it, too, because the George Washington time, the only resource was just people and farmland, right? Uh, if you go to Thomas right. Jefferson, you know, a full 10 years later, I mean, they were still obsessed with the idea that everyone should just be a yeoman farmer. Um, right. So, I mean, resources, now you're talking about coal. Uh, I mean, beginning of the oil industry, right? You're talking about metals. You're talking about all kinds of stuff to build the world of the 20th century. Uh, and, you know, we did trade with some other countries more than others, right? Uh, you know, it helped that England spoke English. We shared, you know, media and culture in a lot of ways. So, like, in a lot of ways, you know, we did become better friends with, you know, England uh, and later right. on France compared to other countries, um, specifically Germany, <laughs> when they were sinking our ships because we were trading <laughs> yeah, right. with England. Uh, you know, in the old days, you, like warfare didn't really affect people in cities or, you know, you'd have a big pitched battle somewhere. And at the end of the day, a lot of people would die and the outcome of the war might have been decided. You know, yeah. I mean, if anyone's ever listened to Dan Carlin's, you know, 80 billion hour uh, World War One tapes uh, and podcasts, I mean, you know, the first time in human history where you had an entire society and civilization basically bent towards fighting a war with all of its people, all of its money, and all right. of its resources. Yeah. And I do recommend is, those podcasts to anybody. Yeah. Dan Carlin, look them up. If you have to, like, 
I, I listen to him <laughs> while painting my mm-hmm. house, a bunch of rooms, and just for hours and hours and hours, uh, you can have some historical uh, entertainment. Well, yeah, I mean, another thing, too, is especially like, I mean, you, you capped it, you know, that idea at World War One, but look at the World War Two or the post-war period. I mean, imagine a country like a 19 or sorry, 1796 America with a population of four million people. And then, you know, you compare that with Nazi Germany uh, and the Imperial Japan declaring war on the United States. And, you know, what was it two days apart? And you're talking right. about something like 17 or probably not 17, but like something like 12 million soldiers you know hundreds of ships you know metal ships that can cross the ocean in you know the pacific in a matter of like three right. four weeks and the atlantic in one week uh well, you know you the idea that, that uh, well i was just gonna say the idea that we'd be perfectly contentedly you know uh picturesquely protected and isolated across two massive oceans well those oceans got a lot smaller as technology increased or advanced yeah. I wonder if now you could almost go back to like have like a neo Washingtonian foreign policy. Like I think you could say like America first or like Trumpism. You know, it's not Trump has no ideas and is not intelligent. But as much as you could like hold some kind of philosophy to his foreign policy um, of kind of like pulling us out and not giving a shit about anything anymore. But like, uh, you know, certainly maybe the Cold War with like Vietnam like, you know, obviously you can make the argument there that maybe we shouldn't have gotten involved really and that we overextended ourselves. And certainly, you know, being like kind of a police state and like right now where we have like military interventions in like 30 countries across the Middle East and Africa and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, do you think uh, maybe we could <laughs> go into a Neo-Washingtonian well, that's uh, an interesting kind of idea, idea there. right? That's an interesting idea. We don't necessarily probably need to be the world's policemen. That being said, our military gives us capabilities and leverages that other countries don't have. And most importantly, for following our own American national interests when it's important. Uh, but the last thing I was going to say is like the world's totally different than in George Washington's time. You know, for example, when George Washington was president, every country in Europe was a zero sum thinking bunch of assholes who just wanted to take right. every last little bit of farmland, every village, every resource they could gobble up. And it was like an endless game of risk. Right. But you, you compare that to like, you know, 1918 uh, or, or 1945 or, you know, 2020. I mean, you look at countries in Europe now. I mean, our, you know, complete isolationism looks stupid when, you know, we have global problems. And I think in pretty much every case, if you have a global problem and you have a rational solution, well, you can probably get Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Germany on your side to help you. And there's no zero sum. I'm going to stab you in the back. There's no Machiavellian kind of, you know, brinkmanship or, you know, game of risk going on that, you know, would actually entangle you. I mean, to some degree, I mean, you talk about like the way we help our allies. Like, I mean, that's some way I think more than any other that George Washington wasn't prescient, but solely because the world's completely changed. Yeah, I would say, though, you know, uh, at least we America compared to most empires throughout world history has been pretty has shown some pretty good restraint and not just like totally like stealing everything they can that's not bolted down from countries that we either invade or, you know, help, you know, certainly some of the countries that we invaded recently, uh, you know, like things like Japan and South Korea are now like giant economic, uh, like competitors, you know, friends, but competitors as well. 
Um, so, you know, say what you well, will about America, you know, we have shown way more restraint than any other empire. Well, yeah, even in the early days of our empire, America was a little different, not to, you know, whitewash or make something sound better. But I was reading this book about America's uh, wars, basically, between the, you know, the War of 18, or not the War of 1812, sorry, the Spanish-American War in 1898 and uh, World War II, kind of like the uh, Western Hemisphere police actions that we did. You know, what Americans did uh, wasn't the best, but if you contrast that to what Europeans were doing in Africa, like there's a, a, a interesting example in Haiti uh, where like when America intervened in Haiti in the early 1900s, uh, Haiti had a, a almost comically inept and corrupt government system where every single year there would be a coup d'etat and a new strongman with military members would walk into the capital from the mountains, uh, basically, you know, kill a bunch of people and take over the government, but allow the previous dictator to run away with that year's basically budget in cash in a briefcase. <laughs> yeah. And the only, you know, it sucked for the people. There were no good institutions. And the only institution was that if you were an oncoming dictator leading a new coup d'etat, you didn't kill the previous dictator and you let him get away with the cash because in a year, there's going to be a bunch of new gorillas coming down the mountains <laughs> right. ready to take you out. <laughs> yeah. And that was like the only, in so like when America came in, put a stop to that, did we invade them? Yeah, but it was only with a couple hundred Marines. And, you know, those Marines spent a lot of time creating some kind of stable government. And they are also creating schools, sanitation systems. So, I mean, to some degree, what we were doing was a little different than, than what Europe was doing. Not to say that we weren't racist, because, you know, part of the reason we didn't outright take Haiti or Cuba, you know, or some of these other places was because of racism. But that being said, you know, I think America, the way we went about it, was a little different. And, you know, while it's still shitty, it was far less worse than, you know, the clear <laughs> yeah. historical alternatives. Right. I mean, look what Belgium did. I mean, if you, you should Google what Belgium did in the Congo if you don't know. Yeah, uh, right. That's a pretty uh, sad and harrowing pretty Wikipedia brutalist. page to read about. But, yeah. Yeah, we did not do that in Haiti or <laughs> the Dominican right. Republic or Panama, uh, as shitty yeah. as we were. <laughs> let's let's go uh, let's go back domestic now. Uh, the next thing Washington kind of talks about is he warns against a demagogue internally. And I wrote this quote down because <laughs> it sounds exactly like prescient uh, warning against someone like Trump. He says um, the disorders and uh, miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual. And sooner or later, the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. And I, I mean, you know, despite what I guess, you know, 70 some odd million voters that wanted Trump to have to keep power, um, you know, I guess it's a good thing the election swang the other way. Enough people, enough Republicans, I guess we could say, you know, realized what a threat Trump was. I mean, obviously, like Trump is more fortunate than his competitors, more than he's more able, right? Because he lost the election and only won on the Electoral College. He should have been impeached, but his party, you know, like our, our factionalism has gotten so bad that the, you know, 
you know, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, actually took his oath of, uh, you know, during the impeachment proceeding seriously and voted to impeach. So, I mean, it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't just like the, you know, minority party just trying to screw with the majority uh, president. Uh, yeah. But that kind of sounds exactly like Trump. 100%. Uh, but I had a, but I had a question kind of, you know, not going too much into Trump, but the macro idea. I have a question. Do you think parties are good like what benefits do parties have that maybe washington wasn't uh you know granting to i guess factionalism that you know factionalism does do well or can help a uh, government well i think parties are inherently good because you have to have some kind of organization right that's like the you know people always talk about how you know george washington warned about parties and fashions but like this before he was even out of office you had two basically full political parties and the federalists and the uh democratic right. republicans that are they hated each other so much yeah. that you know they were variously threatening to secede from the country already <laughs> i mean thomas jefferson was a great man but when you read you know a biography about other people who weren't thomas jefferson it's it's pretty pretty hard to not come away with the idea that thomas jefferson was kind of an asshole trying to undermine the washington administration from the inside because he agreed uh, disagreed with George Washington right. and, and specifically hated and disagreed with Alexander Hamilton on so many issues. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, there's that, right? <laughs> right. I think uh, in terms of party politics, like obviously the vote getting like, you know, it, I guess it's it's nice to have government function if you have whips actually figuring out what people are voting for, how they're voting, how they can get them to vote for certain things, you know, having some kind of party structure where you can apply pressure to actually get things done, like some of these tough uh, compromises. Like if we really had a hundred senators with a hundred totally different perspectives and a hundred different motives and a hundred different, you know, I guess, uh, like uh, persuasion points, you know, I would, you know, it, it's very likely government would be uh, completely uh, ineffective, right? If you liter- if you literally had a hundred totally individual people, completely independent of all of each other's ideas and thoughts, right? Like that would maybe be chaos. And all refusing because they don't want to be part of a faction. Like imagine, yeah, yeah, like, right. <laughs> well, there was an institutional distaste for ever wanting to be with someone else on a podium, right. sharing. So no topic. majority ever yeah. happened. <laughs> well, we can't have a party on climate change. Well, one so, thing I will uh, say yeah, we'll is never that, do anything. One thing I will say is that I think having two parties is stupid. But really, that's the the inevitable logical you know result of having a first past the post electoral system. Uh, Obviously, in parliamentary systems with proportional representation, you can get these weird third parties, uh, you know, that have small amounts of voters who like them and care about a couple pet issues. And then, you know, at some point at some, you know, uh, in an election, you know, one of the bigger political parties has to join in with these smaller political parties and throw them a bone here and there to get anything done or even to form a government. Right. I mean, the effective thing or, or I shouldn't say the effective, the the rational thing to think about with having only two parties is that a political, uh, you know, spectrum of ideas and ideologies and philosophies do not nicely flatten down. You know, Really, you're, you're taking like a 3D kind of shape and flattening it to 2D and saying, here you go. And basically no one's ever going to be happy. And in, a, you know, two massive big tent political parties, uh, you know, they're going to pretend 
to care about some things for like lip service for a couple special interest groups trying to get as many rolled in the one tent as possible and it's going to conflict with all kinds of other things and that's you know a big reason why people hate our government right i mean if you're uh, have a specific pet issue you care about and the political parties don't even really pretend to care, well, then you're never going to be truly represented. Right. Uh, but that's just one way of looking at it. It's really like yeah. a 3D political world being compressed into just a 2D, you know, left of center or right of center kind yeah, of way of looking at it. I guess, but in a way, in a way, these big tent, like, uh, dualities of government are essentially just coalitions already existing, Right. You could make the case that, like, obviously the Democrats are, you know, central Democrats and the Green Party and then what, like, like socialists all joined together already kind of in a coalition. Well, I mean, but I but I guess I guess in a way that make well, I mean, I guess in a way that makes it. I mean, those people did throw away their votes to vote for a third Green Party. Yeah, but I mean, that that gets to the point that, like, our political process is kind of stupid more well, the, necessarily than the, the, first the philosophy the of it. The electoral system, really. I mean, right. basically, it doesn't matter how many political parties you have. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Um, yeah. And even if you have a runoff system like Georgia does, well, the first election, you know, might not necessarily be just any plurality wins, but the second one will, you know, after the runoff. Yeah. It will be interesting that, you know, the having the runoff, like Georgia does that for racist reasons because black and poor and minority voters are less likely to vote a second time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is kind of, it would be funny because right now, like Trump is kind of screwing things up by saying, like, everything's rigged. So a lot of conservative voters, you know, hopefully <laughs> think it's rigged and aren't going to vote, which would be nice. But it is kind of funny that you would have that system where the Republican wins more votes first and then on the recount for for, you know, for a litany of reasons. But then the yeah. Democrat wins on the, you know, just kind of a funny thing. It would be I would it would be a little bit of karmic justice for like Republicans to lose this election on account of them making the runoff <laughs> specifically to try to help themselves, you know, well, disenfranchise Democratic voters in a way. Like, right, look, yeah. at, look at Brexit, right? Brexit won because a lot of people in Britain thought there's no way people are going to vote to leave the European right. Union, right? Uh, but yeah, so the last little point I have for George Washington's farewell address is I, I kind of like uh, how Washington closes a letter uh, asking the American people to forgive him for any failures. And he says, yeah, that any failures that may have occurred during my presidency, basically, they're resulting from my own weakness. Uh, rather than any malintent. And at the beginning of the uh, document, he actually goes so far as to say that any great successes of my administration are from like the people around me and the people's trust in me more so than my own, you know, personal ability to get the job done, essentially. And I love this humble quote I have written here. It says, in looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me. Uh, so what like a fantastic, humble quote, looking back at a career of public service in the country he helped found. And, you know, the question, probably rhetorical, of course, uh, I ask is like, do you think Trump would ever say anything like that on his way out of right. thanking the country for uh, trusting in him and giving him the honor of a lifetime to serve not himself, but the country and, the you know, his fellow citizens? Right. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, look at, you know, Trump. What was that at the convention when he, he yelled on that stage? I alone can fix it. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. You know, and, but then you look at some of the campaign speeches he did where he's like literally telling these like like Oklahoma or some like rural state that he would never, ever go there for any reason except for the election asking for their vote. And then he would say things yeah. like, if you don't vote for me, you know, I'm definitely never coming back. Uh, and talking about like the like the humility and being humble, like at the beginning, he's got even more great quotes where he, he like kind of prefaces his whole uh, uh, address by saying he goes, I will only say that I have, with good intentions, contributed towards the organization and administration of the government, the best exertions of which a very fallible judgment was capable. Basically, kind of, you know, like self-deprecating, saying, you know, like, he's sure he, you know, he had fallible judgment. And he says uh, that he's not unconscious in the outset of his inferiority, which is, you know, you'd never hear Trump say something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. And then it's he has like a last warning toward the end I just wanted to bring up about fake patriotism I thought was kind of interesting where he was saying like he warns us to guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. And I think this is so true right now. I mean, obviously the the most blatant example is Trump who doesn't really care about America. You know like America first while he's getting bribes from countries and like, you know, spending a hundred years worth of presidential uh, salary golfing and putting that money into his own hotels and golf courses. But like going back further, it's like the idea of pretended patriotism, you know, I'm, I'm really reminded of the Iraq war in that time period. You know, obviously that was when we were in high school and kind of coming into like political consciousness, but the idea of like everybody having to wear flag pins all the time and mm-hmm. like, you know, even calling, you know, French rice freedom fries yeah, because right. France and, you know, like that, that to me is such pretended patriotism. And remember how much beef Obama got because he didn't wear that flag pin to begin with, you know, because he thought it was stupid. And it's yeah. like, a, like it's a dumb way to show like you're just blindly loyal to the country. Like, obviously, if you're in Congress, you're loyal to America. No one should really question your like love for America. You know, certainly. Uh, or if uh, 80 million Americans actions. voted for you or in Obama's case, 65 million Americans voted for you. You're probably not, you know, the wor- you're not the devil reincarnate. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's uh that's pretty dumb. Well, look at COVID. Uh, I mean, that's such a good point, too. Or Benghazi is a perfect example, right? The Republican Party still mentions every once in a while how, you know, Obama, Biden, Hillary Clinton, and, and you know, they brought it up with Susan Rice when she was being considered potentially in the Biden administration uh, as a nominee of some kind. Uh, you know, they say, like, oh, never forget that those Democrats let four Americans die in Benghazi. But it's like, how many Americans are dying every single day right now because of COVID, right? We have, like, a 9-11 amount of Americans dying every two or three days. Thanksgiving now it's, day- like, every day and a half. Yeah, it's and like, you have Republicans like- still saying, don't wear a mask, go wherever you want, go see your family for the holidays. It's like, give me a break. Fa- like, false patriotism right if you're a patriot and want your country to thrive how about not having you know uh five or six or seven thousand people die a week from covid simply because i mean here here, i mean (laughs) not to do like a humble brag or anything but it's like i like i'm going to the gym and i wear a mask while i run multiple miles i'm pretty sure people can wear a mask while they go get groceries. You know what I mean? The 20 minutes that, you know, you don't have to wear a mask when you're in your house or in your car, but for the 15 minutes you're getting groceries, wear a mask. 
Yeah. Uh, apparently, that's too much to handle for some, you know, right. patriots who want to who love their country and want to protect it at all costs. Yeah, there was a cool post I saw that was basically saying that like only projecting your freedoms without honoring your responsibilities is yeah. not being an adult. It's like being an adolescent. Yeah, and that's so true. It's like your responsibility to just do the bare minimum and wear a mask to keep your own germs from getting all over the faces of everybody around you and infecting them with whatever you have, like while we're in this pandemic is like, that's like the most basic responsibility you have. But the idea that your freedom to like be, to have your nose unencumbered, you know, going out in a giant public place in time of pandemic, you know, that it, that literally is like a child's view of patriotism and constitutional liberty. liberty yeah. Well, another thing too is like people, especially on the right wing, the far right, who are saying that this is an injustice of liberty, and that you know once the state takes a certain power or control over your life, they never give it back. And I'm it's like, I'm pretty sure Gavin Newsom doesn't personally want to make sure that after COVID ends, that every Californian is still wearing a mask for no fucking reason after COVID ends. You know what I mean? Right. Like if they get full vaccines across the country and we get herd immunity and people vaccinated, I doubt like, you know, the Republican governor of like X, Y and Z states are going to or the Democrats. for Like, do you think uh, Cuomo in New York is going to mandate everyone just keep wearing masks for, you know, getting off on that power trip of just telling the people to wear a mask like that's not gonna happen yeah the whole idea and it, is stupid. you know it's and it's dumb because it's like the party of pro-life is against this where it's <laughs> yeah. like literally donald trump was yeah. like literally saying shit that like grandma and grandpa had a good life but we need the economy open. well that was larry like, kudlow right he basically said right. that maybe the the greatest generation's last you know heroic act of oh their my lives God. will be to die so that the economy can stay right. open <laughs> So Which, dumb. again, like, nobody's pro- saying the economy can't stay open. Just wear a mask while you go outside. Right. And, you know, like, we wouldn't have had to shut down everything if everybody just wore a mask, like, in Taiwan, where life is normal. Because, you know, Asians have... It's kind of like a cultural thing that they wear masks more often. You know, if you're sick, even if you just have a cold or the flu, like, before this whole pandemic, you know, a lot of Asians wear masks in public if they're feeling sick. Because it's that, like, level of responsibility they feel in society that they just already do that. But in America, you know, God forbid. Yeah. And that's what that's what pisses me off about the pro-life stuff, because it's like the theme of 2021 as um, Joe Biden takes over and fills his administration and has to go through like Senate confirmations and stuff is just shut the fuck up. Like all these pro-life people who are going to talk about being pro-life and, you know, like forcing <laughs> raped women to carry to terms like uh, fetuses, you know, and it's like juxtaposed to all their talking points on how COVID, you know, we shouldn't <laughs> shut down the economy for something that's so not like that doesn't matter. Well, what it's about like, shut the fuck up? And it's like, you know, Joe Biden, like near a Tandon, you know, oh, she was mean on Twitter. Shut the fuck up. Like, yeah, that's the theme of 2020. Well, talking about pro-life. Remember when Louis Gohmert, you know, a.k.a. America's dumbest congressman from Texas, uh, <laughs> yeah. he he <laughs> He assembled and his, ugliest. Yeah, he he, <laughs> yeah, well, he, he he gets a double whammy. Yeah, well, I'm just—it's so funny. He's a ardent pro-life congressman, ardent pro-life Republican, but he assembles his staff in his congressional office to personally tell them in person, "I have COVID." <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I missed that. I, I didn't see that. that yeah, like, there that were staffers happened. complaining, and 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 the, you know they leaked that you know obviously via Twitter and stuff, right. saying like, can you believe this? Like he literally assembled us to tell us in person he has COVID, not yeah. wearing a mask, mind you. <laughs> or Donald Trump getting COVID, you know, after saying it's going to magically disappear like magic. It's well, a hoax. yeah, it's Democrats' latest. Hoax. I was listening we're to this guy. The, even now, he's saying every day he, we're rounding the corner, <laughs> rounding <Yeah>. the corner. <laughs> We've been rounding the corner since the summer. Well, this well, the funny thing too is Donald Trump was actually worried he was going to die, and there there were some people going on on like podcasts who were like infectious disease or COVID experts, basically saying that the 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 medicine uh, um, that he was on and given at the time basically implied one of two things. One was they completely lied about the timeline of when he got COVID, probably to. Uh, maybe hide the fact that he might have almost exposed Joe Biden to COVID, uh, one or two. Uh, he was actually deathly ill, and you know, you know, speculating on his uh, lack of uh, work at like working out or exercise, his terrible diet, and him being obese. You know, he was it was being speculated that Donald Trump may have actually you know put himself in a position by not wearing mask of having a twenty percent chance of dying of COVID when he had it, which is just sad. Yeah. Like, like America, you know, our nuclear arsenal and nuclear code system is basically dependent on one individual, the president, and the president didn't wear a mask and had a tw- maybe had a 20% chance of dying. So the guy with the nuclear codes had a 20% yeah. chance of dying. And on top of that, they gave him a bunch of steroids that made him delusional and feel super powerful as part of the treatment. Yeah, he tweeted and then, all yeah. day. <laughs> yeah. And well, that guy, yeah. Because they were, I mean, I was reading this thing and they were talking about how, like, you know, even in Russia, they have a more sensible nuclear policy where, you know, a first strike nuclear attack actually has to go through more people than just Vladimir Putin. But in America's system, it's just Donald Trump. One individual alone. The president has sole responsibility right now to just launch nukes if he if he so felt, uh, you know, if he basically chose to do that. And the only thing the only thing institutionally stopping him was whoever was literally carrying the nuclear code briefcase. They would have to just run away from him if they wanted to stop him launching nuclear uh, weapons. Yeah. But yeah. So that guy was delusional (laughs) on drugs and had a 20 percent chance of dying. (laughs) What? What are the odds you think that the the military football case uh, following Trump was fake? Just be, <laughs> like at some point, is the military just like we can't have the real one? Like we're we're gonna let him think he called in a, a nuclear yeah. strike. We'll, we'll let it, it leak to the public, <laughs> and then he'll have to he'll lie about it, yeah. and deny it, you know, after the fact. But we're not gonna let him go through with it. It's like yeah, we'll keep the the real briefcase in the building, but we're not you know crazy. But yeah, it's a funny yeah thought. right. Well, and that that's obviously a law that needs to change. Yeah. <laughs> Lasting thought, like, you know, a demagogue shouldn't be able to on a whim call a nuclear yeah. strike on on Denmark <laughs> when Denmark won't sell us Greenland. <laughs> Putting our toes yeah. in a, a ridiculous rabbit hole at the end of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sounds yeah. about right. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Brain Milk Podcast. I'm Dash McIntyre. I'm Adrian Pope. And check out the Halfway Post and enjoy the guitar solo. (laughs) 